of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 77 of You Don't Have to Yell. Now, you may remember back in December when I spoke with Barbara Dahlgren, the outgoing co-chair of the Wisconsin Green Party, about their efforts in the state. And we had a great conversation. And if you didn't listen to it, you should. Now, she introduced me to their incoming co-chair, Joe Nathan Kingfisher, and we synced up just before the new year to talk about his plans for 2021. And just as with Barbara, we dove into a bunch of really interesting topics not being discussed in the media and not being discussed by either major party. And given the riot at the Capitol and the celebration of MLK Day earlier this week, I thought it was relevant, so I wanted to put this out. Now, if you ever wanted to learn Ojibwe, this is your guy. It'll make sense in a minute. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. I am here with Joe Nathan Kingfisher, the newly minted co-chair of the Wisconsin Green Party. And thanks for joining me, Joe Nathan. How are you doing? Uh, Great. Doing very good today. Joe Nathan and I are both possibly doing this at the worst possible times for both of us personally. Uh, I am at home with four children who are home on Christmas break. Joe Nathan, I know you have you have kids at home as well. How many do you have now? Uh, two of my own. Uh, my son has uh, just turned five. He okay. turned five on Christmas and uh, my daughter is six. Oh, nice. And my stepson is uh, 16 going on 32. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've got uh, a, a 21 who's going back on 16. So it kind of <laughs> comes, comes, comes full circle. Yeah. And uh, so at any rate, there, there may be some interruptions as well. So just uh, keep that in mind, everyone. It is, uh, it, is, it is Christmas season. Before we get into the, to the, to the politics stuff, you know, one of the things I know when we spoke prior to this taping was that you, you actually run a, a homeschool uh, correct. So you homeschool your children. Correct. Yeah. And it's, and you actually do an Ojibwe immersion program, correct? That is correct as well. Can you talk about that? Cause I just found that absolutely fascinating. Sure. Um, well, first of a, a traditional Ojibwe, uh, introduction, uh, uh, Zibisin is my middle name and it is also my real name in Ojibwe. Um, okay. And my artist and business name is ZB Kingfisher. Uh, and, uh, you, there's lots of loan words from Ojibwe to English, like moose. Uh, moose is a, uh, Ojibwe original, and mm-hmm. that has gone into English as moose, yeah. and also the Mississippi. And uh, uh, Misabe is giant, and Zibi is river. And Zibisin okay. uh, is lots of little rivers. And uh, Ogiski Manisi is my family clan spirit, and it is also the kingfisher bird, and that is what my last name is f- from and for, the kingfisher okay. And Odawa Zareganing dash Gete Waswaganing. Old Waswaganing is the traditional place that uh, my 
uh, father line is from here in northern Wisconsin. Uh Um, And uh, traditionally, Ojibwe is through the father lines, though with modern tribal enrollment, um, that's, uh, you know, it's just from either parent you get your um blood quantum from so uh, i am not i'll say i am not a federal tribal member i'm not a federal tribal indian i am ethnically ojibwe from my father's bloodline so i he raised me speaking ojibwe he was a a professor of history, a Native American Indian professor of history, American history, and world history. And he was also a head librarian and academic dean. So I grew up in the university environment. And one of the things, um, my dad's mom is from the Stuntz family, and Albert Conrad Stuntz was an original U.S. Governor, govern, government translator for... Okay. Um, the treaties and he surveyed both the reservations and the counties originally. And so there's even a road students road that, that is named in honor of my dad's mom's family. Got it. Got it. So you go way back in all different directions in the area then. Oh, um, right. right? And I'll, I'll, I will also say um, uh, there's an Island morning Wanakong. Uh, uh, the Golden Flicker Bird Island, which is the Ojibwe capital islands known as Madeline Island. And uh, the town on Madeline is La Pointe. La Pointe was the very first corporation in Wisconsin. So it was a product of the marriage of Ojibwe Native American Indian people and uh, incoming uh, European descendant people. So uh, Wisconsin started originally Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan were all Michigan territory. And when that got divided up, uh, the Ojibwe people and the uh, European descendants were critical in architecture of the Wisconsin government and society out of La Pointe, which was the first corporation of Wisconsin yeah. mining and railroad company. It's fascinating because so my entire bloodline in the United States goes back to like 1920, something like that, like 1925. My family all came over from uh, Ireland in the last migration. So, I mean, when I talk to people who have these bloodlines that just go back, I mean, centuries and in your case, like millennia, you know, it just it absolutely blows my mind. And one of the, I know we had talked too. like, so I'm a bit, I'm a huge language geek. I know you're, you're raising your kids, not just learning Ojibwe, but they're learning a bunch of different languages, correct? Right. Well, they've been exposed to a dozen regular languages. And it's, um, the biggest thing I can say about that is after years of growing up with a dozen different languages, uh, they listen to those languages now with patience when other languages that they had not been exposed to kind of bore them out and they're not so interested in spending time with those. Really? So, so indulge my language geek here in terms of like, when you look at Ojibwe and English comparatively, what, what's a, are there any concepts that just blow English speakers mind when they get minds, when they get introduced to the language or, or no? Well, the experience of, 
the vowels is quite okay. different. Uh, Ojibwe is a very musical language, and the vowels come in uh, quarter notes, half notes, and whole notes. Okay. Okay, and, so it's... Go on, sorry. Well, no, it's great. Um, I mean, I kind of joked with you earlier that uh, Ojibwe has been uh, called the, the Welsh of Native America yeah. for its length. And... Um, I, among Ojibwe speakers, I sort of get called sing-songy. Uh, my dad was a musician. He played piano for, you know, his whole life. And, and uh, he actually played the carillon, the bell tower at the University of Wisconsin, okay. Madison. And um, so we're, we're very musical people. In fact, it's been said every word is a song and a prayer. So yeah. uh, we're supposed to, you know, use our words uh with that appreciation of their uh influence and power do you know it's so funny you say that because when i was so when i was learning mandarin um and i got to maybe like a beginner level and then had to stop so i i i remember i've forgotten more than i remember um but i remember the 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 tones of of mandarin which a lot of english speakers have problems with um i remember i kind of was able to adapt to those by singing the language in a way, yeah, you know, and, and it doesn't sound like Ojibwe is not tonal. It doesn't sound like, but it sounds like there's some element of timing that's going to dictate the, the meaning. Is that, am yeah. I hearing that correctly? Or? Yeah, definitely. Um, now I, I think as far as concept, the biggest difference in going to the grammar is that, uh, there is no inherent pronoun reference for uh he or she it's just you or the person you're speaking you know me i the person you're speaking to you or them they over there and okay. so that that takes care of a lot of kind of um we're in the green party we're dealing with uh trying to include everybody and that mm -hmm. gender diversity mm -hmm. I, I i went to india at one point I, I think there were five different genders at the place i was at uh you know there, there's as far as you know male female in the middle yeah. on this side on that side you know i'm not quite sure but um you know th that that's it's just um personhood uh as far as actors me, you, them. And then another, there is a grammatical difference between living and non-living. And we're not talking about biological living or biological non-living. We're talking about energetically living or energetically not living, which also goes over to, is it interesting? Is it meaningful? Is it not interesting? Is it not meaningful? Yeah. It's so, it's, so I got into a conversation with my daughter about this because we were talking about preferred pronouns and everything. And because, and I was talking about how in Mandarin, there's just, there's one pronoun uh, for every gender. They're written differently. So he, she, it exist in writing, but they don't exist in speech. And on the flip side, you know, the, the, um, the romance languages, and I speak decent Portuguese and okay French, you know, the romance languages have uh, gender assignments to everything. Mm -hmm. So like in a gender neutral world, how do you say the lamp in French? And it's, it's all, it's, it's soup. It's at any rate, it's, I, I find it very interesting. The, the conversations around gender, super interesting from just a linguistic perspective, because how that's going to take place in Ojibwe, for instance, or how that's going to take place in English or Mandarin is going to be vastly different, you know? 
And one more point I guess I would make, uh, yeah. which relates to politics, is in Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, uh, uh, Anishinaabe is a more general word that sort of means indigenous, native, aboriginal, mm -hmm. everybody's included. Uh, Ojibwe, literally uh, the way I was raised uh, with, with speaking, means those who speak. So, um, and in fact, at um, Lac de Flambeau Reservation, which is a French name, it's not Ojibwe name. Uh, yeah. It, uh, it was the elders specifically published that if an Ojibwe person doesn't speak Ojibwe, they weren't to be considered Ojibwe. Well, the Bureau of Indian Affairs got rid of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, a very important part for Ojibwe Anishinaabeg politics is it, the grammar always says who does what to who or what. There's never a non-personal actor. If something happens in the world, if the government officials do something, if the corporate people do something, it's always somebody doing it. And what are they doing? They're doing something specific to something or somebody, or they're just doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless you for bringing it back to politics, because I did tell you that I was going to take us down a linguistic rabbit hole if I could. Now, you're right near up in Ashland. You're right near uh, uh, an Ojibwe reservation as well. Correct. Ashland is a border town to um, Bad River Reservation. Of course, in Bad River, it's Mashkizibi, which means strong medicine river. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh <laughs> uh, it's also just uh, south of uh, Red Cliff Reservation, uh, although they have a little bit more luxurious, uh, well-to-do border town on their side. And then there's a, a town in between the two border towns across the bay. Yeah. And the reason we were both laughing at, at Bad River Reservation, for those who are unfamiliar with this aspect of American history, is any time uh, in, in, in indigenous people had a holy site, uh, whether it was a river, mountain, or, or whatever, uh, the European settlers would automatically change it to something bad. So bad river, bad water, devil's mountain. Yeah. I, I mean, know. just a uh, caveat there. Um, the, the word for bad in Ojibwe is maji, and the word for strong, the root of strong and medicine is mashki. So mashki okay. and maji, you know, you can get them mixed up. And I'll tell you, it's a floodplain and the river floods. And when it floods, it's bad. All right. So, okay. There, so, there's some caveats. So we'll cut the Europeans some slack and just assume it was bad Ojibwe that, that caused the problem. Well, um, um, both sides. I remember we married into each other. Well, well, exa exa true enough. True enough. And so, uh, how much, you know, how much do do, do tribal politics or, or or tribal policies come into play up there? And and maybe does how much does that uh, play into maybe some of the things you're doing with the Green Party as well? Um, the biggest issue for I think I, I feel confident saying this: the biggest issues would be mining threats mm -hmm. and. CAFOs, confined animal operations, uh, where there's a large amount of feces spilled into our water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, those are the two biggest that I can think of. And I'll have to say, um, the, the Bad River tribal government themselves did an incredible job. We had a multi-billion dollar mining company come in here and i mean they wanted to take out this town down the road they wanted the rocks a mile deep they wanted every bit of it and somehow i don't know how the 
the tribal government got got rid of this company. They sent them down the road. I mean, it was going to destroy us. It was going to yeah. destroy us. And uh, so uh, I'll also say um, I grew up uh, in southern Michigan, just half an hour south of the capital, Lansing, my a small liberal arts college town. My dad was professor, academic dean, librarian there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, just down the road from there was the largest continental oil spill of American history. It was the Kalamazoo River spill. And that place, I, I, it was my old stomping grounds, my old walking grounds, my old running ground. And I saw that place destroyed. And mm -hmm. I had to leave because of oil bomb outs, you know, I mean, for five years, Enbridge Corporation knew about oil leaks and the, you know, they didn't, you know, they're making their money. They're not, you know, they own the cleanup company. They, they make money when it spills, you know, I would, you know, the nearest cleanup crew to that uh, spill was here in, you know, near Ashland is 17 hour drive. They had to go down there to clean it up. And now at the end of my road, at the end of the farm road, dirt road is yeah. the line five. <laughs> so I have been completely supportive of Michigan's governor, uh, Whitmore for, um, executive order shut down line five. That is the biggest threat to our watershed, to our life, to our existence. And we have the right to exist. And this foreign company, this Canadian company that, I mean, my neighbors get threatened because their kids talk bad in college about Enbridge. Enbridge phones my neighbors up and threatens imminent domain on them for public relations control. <laughs> That's the biggest threat we got. And when I came back, I was teaching uh, math and science in Hopi and uh, Navajo in, in Arizona. And I came back for uh, the language culture crisis to revitalize our language and culture. And what I was told by the veterans of our tribe was that uh, if they mine us out, if they destroy us with oil, what good is our language and culture? Because we're not gonna be here to live it or speak it. Mm -hmm. So it, that that's a big deal to us. Our, our water, our clean environment, our clean air, our food from the land. Yeah. And it sounds too, just to kind of reemphasize the point, it, it, it sounds like this isn't, this is existential for big. the folks up there, right? It's big. Kind of getting back to your upbringing then and, and your, you know, you growing up in Michigan. Uh, is that what, kind of drew you to the Green Party? Like, were you always Green Party based on that? Or did you go through some sort of political journey that, that got you there? Oh, well, no, I, I grew up Democratic. My, okay. my parents voted Democratic. I mean, I voted Democratic. Uh, and, it, you know, I, uh, I grew up in nature and that, that um, led me to get my uh, biology degree. I got a bachelor's in biology. I got a bachelor's degree in language and culture uh, mm -hmm. under anthropology at Michigan State. And my uh, biology degree was from a, a small liberal arts college, Alma College in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I started that with zoology and industrial design. And I switched it to general biology and exercise health science. And then I got uh, anthropology with Asian studies. And uh, at the time that I got my second graduate or my second bachelor's, that was about uh, the millennial. And that was at the time that Ralph Nader and Winona LaDuke were 
mm-hmm. making their presidential bid. And um, that was a real eye-opening experience to me. That was a lot of disappointment. Um, I, I really wanted Al Gore to... Uh, actually, I voted for Nader over Al Gore because I saw Al Gore over there with the bankers saying, your interests are my interests. And that didn't jive with what you know needed to be happening 20 years ago. Well, what mm-hmm. needed to be happening 20 years ago didn't happen. And I'm amazed that it seems all of the Democratic senators went for Bush. <laughs> well, okay. So all of the Democrats, when they could have gotten their guy in, he didn't fight for it, and they went for the Republican. And then I, you know, we went on to have an incredibly racist Middle Eastern set of wars. And I was a kid experiencing this incredible racism towards Middle Eastern people and kind of trying to hide in the shadows because I didn't, you know, I, 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 I didn't want that onslaught of racism towards me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to bring folks up to speed too, you know, 2000 was, you know, a couple things happened in 2000. Number one, of course, there was that electoral uh, victory for Bush that was won in the Supreme Court that ultimately solidified his presidency. Now, of course, now where we still have talk of overriding uh, a, a, a loss of, or overriding a victory of 7 million votes in this country, it seems laughable, you know, but at the time, uh, Bush won Florida by a razor thin margin in the popular vote. And, and again, I think there was, to your point, there, if there were ever a time where the Senate could contest the Electoral College or ever a time when uh, senators from another party should ask questions, it was back then. The margin was just that thin. And of course, Al Gore was the popular vote winner if you take Florida. Um, even if you keep Florida in the equation, he was a popular vote winner on the national level. The, the second part of that, and I think probably more applicable to what you're doing now, is that seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to me like the moment the Democrats and the Greens started feuding because <laughs> that was the moment that Ralph Nader got enough popularity to be viewed as a spoiler. Am I wrong there or, or no? Well, let me take it back. The last uh, alternative candidate that got anywhere close to traction in the United States political system was uh, Ross Perot. Mm-hmm. I remember there were, after he scared the establishment, there were all kinds of mechanisms and things done to make sure that would never happen again. Yep. And I feel that, that sort of, uh, to, you know, a lot of the split between, uh, you know, Democrats and uh, Green Party. I, I think you're right there. Like Ross Perot was the first candidate to really threaten the major party establishment. He got somewhere around, I think it was 20% of the popular vote in 1992. Um, I can't remember where he landed in 96, wasn't nearly as much. Um, but after that, the the Republicans, for whatever reason, were able to uh, kind of keep their base secure enough, um, whereas the, the Green Party has always appeared to be able to eat a little more um, or, or pull, I should say, pull more people over uh, from the Democratic side. And, and a lot of what I hear from folks in the Green Party as well is, is similar to you. You know, they started as Democrats, but what they saw was that uh, the values they had, the values that made them Democrats to begin with, weren't necessarily the values of the party anymore. 
Right. And I mean, at that time, I, I distinctly remember Hillary Clinton publicly stating that she wished Ralph Nader would get shot. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, affected my mental and emotional little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even and I talked about this with um, with Barbara Dahlgren as well, who uh, for those watching or those who are listening on the podcast uh, was was a guest on the podcast uh, earlier uh, in the in the month. One of the big bones of contention, obviously, was was in in 2016 um, when uh, Hillary uh, lost by uh, very thin margins in you know Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and so on. Um, a lot of that was heaped on uh, the Green Party, or a lot of the blame. Um, but also, you know, the the in my mind, uh, if you can't, if you couldn't beat a candidate with the level of unfavorability uh, that Donald Trump had going into the election, then there's something you did too. You know, it's not all Jill Stein. Right. And there's, there's another moment in American political history that I remember at one point, uh, Obama and I voted for Obama. Um, he, uh, addressed, uh, legislatures and announced citizens united. And he Mm -hmm. specifically said now untold amounts of uh, influential money is going to go pouring into our system. And he sort of chastised that. But at the same time, all the legislatures were applauding Mm because they they were collecting. And I mean, I want to say Citizens United should be citizens excluded, should be bribery unlimited, should be supreme corruption. I agree with all those titles and we could vote on which one's the best one but you are a hundred percent on you're you're a hundred percent on point there and and one of the things that got me into this actually uh was originally this whole venture started as a project to get campaign finance reform implemented and what i realized is there is no campaign finance law that can't be gutted in the courts not one (laughs) you know there's none and the the only way you're going to have accountable government is if the barriers that keep minor parties and and alternative parties from gaining a voice or an equal voice to the two major parties until you have that the two major parties are never going to need to serve the the bulk of the voters and um i i i want to say a word for ranked choice voting please uh, just th- th- that's the shout out. We're we're working for it. Maine's got it. A lot of places have got yeah. it. Uh, we're seeing good results with that, and we yeah. think that supports de- democracy, the democratic process. Yep. Do you know? So I was actually just talking about this um, with the guy you may or may not know, Adam Friedman, mm. who runs an organization called Rank the Vote. Big ranked choice voting uh, activist out there. And um, the the thing that we were talking about was if you look at the if you look at countries with similar electoral systems as ours, so you look at Canada, you look at England, um, the UK, excuse me, uh, you look at Canada, you look at the UK, um, uh, these are countries that have a similar system for electing people in and similar barriers that allow our two major parties to exist, but they also have equal media access. You know, so even, so everybody gets an equal equal footing or equal media coverage. Um, and that allows these minor parties to get their voice across, allows them to pick up some, some, uh, some, uh, 
seats in parliament and and our feeling was that you know ranked choice voting effectively makes every candidate a legitimate candidate it makes anyone on the ballot not a spoiler and so by virtue of that um they should and would get coverage in the media that's beyond just how do they impact the major party candidate you know that's that's my feeling on it i don't know if you have anything to to say on that or at, at all well, I, I hope that uh, technology these days, such as podcasts, uh, can democratize, uh, democratize the, yeah. the, the process a bit. Um, I, I just I have a few points I just w- want to segue to. One yeah, is, sure. um, I, I know there's a lot of people that um, have some sort of affiliation or uh, feeling for Native American Indian uh, identity, ethnicity, heritage. And there's, there's a difference between ancestors and predecessors, those that mm-hmm. came before us and those that we came from. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think that anybody that has any good feeling for Native America uh, should support treaty rights. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not a federal Indian, but that that is a great starting point that that there is an there is federal Indian law and it governs a lot. And um, there's been misuse and positive use of that. But but at a basic starting point, I think treaty rights are a really great thing for everybody to support. Can you explain that a little that concept a little more in depth? Because I don't think. I, I, I think a lot of people aren't familiar with that, and I'd love well, to get that out there. Well, it, it, it concisely, um, there was an exchange of land for arrangement, social mm-hmm. arrangement. And, um, you know, it goes basically like if the United States government and people cannot uphold a promise, uphold an agreement, we'd like the land back sometimes there's buybacks. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the tribe has enough to purchase land back. Sometimes there's a strange arrangement where, you know, somehow the land is given back. It's not very popular. It's not very common, Um, but, but that's essentially there, there were agreements. There were, um, you know, now my, my um, European ancestor was a translator for the treaty process. Yeah. Um, one of the things we should have asked for and got was a university. We should have gotten a university, a national university with professional programs that would produce lawyers and doctors and um, uh, business people that could be the architects of our social order society. That Mm. didn't happen, and there's a racket on it. You can't legally represent other people unless you're a lawyer. You can't medically administer to other people unless you're a doctor. You can't, you know, do the business paperwork unless you know the business ins and outs. When we should have translated better and gotten that to produce for our society, then we would have full members uh, for example, uh, Green Party related, we got sued by the Democrats uh, for a technicality to get us off the ballot this election because yep. the vice presidential candidate had moved addresses. And in the same it, town in Georgia, sorry to interrupt, moved yeah. from one end of the town to the other end of the town and got thrown off the ballot for that. Sorry. Okay. And w- no, it's good. We got sued and 
all of the lawyers in Wisconsin are politicized. There's Democratic lawyers and there's Republican lawyers. And there mm -hmm. wasn't one Democratic lawyer that was going to represent our Green Party interests. So we had to hire a Republican and then got all kinds of flack for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, well, we, you know, we need Green Party lawyers and we need Ojibwe lawyers mm -hmm. to, to create the society. And I've heard a lawyer once say, every aspect of legal work is social engineering. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Joe Nathan Kingfisher. I hope you're enjoying this episode and as always, wanted to take a short break to remind you why we're here. Now, the riot in the Capitol and the dysfunction and divisiveness of our system is entirely due to a system that only allows for two parties. And our winner-take-all system of voting, where one more vote than second place makes you the winner, means candidates can take office by appealing to their partisan base, and a small, organized contingent can have an outsized voice in government. And America is not divided in so much as we're presented with increasingly divisive choices. And I need your help getting the word out. Now, there are numerous organizations out there that need your help. And some Googling on electoral reform in your state or city can help you get in touch with them. I'd also encourage you to share this podcast with others in your network, as we need more like-minded folks to join in the conversation and build the momentum for real change. I hope you'll join me in the fight. And now, back to the episode. Something I say time, you know, every now and then on this show is that government and law exists effectively to keep us all from killing each other. <laughs> you know, that's why it exists. And so, you know, when we talk about law, what we're talking about are things that maintain uh, ideally a certain sense of justice. Um, I, I want to, if you don't mind, I'd love to dig a little more into this, this concept of recognizing treaties and adhering to it, because, you know, I think a lot of times when you're talking about folks who don't have a lot of experience with, with tribal issues and with tribal politics, and I'll, be first to admit I'm probably chief among them. Um, you know, I think our general, the, the general perception you get is that it's really, it's really all about land. You know, it's all about the fact that I right now I'm sitting on land that was once Wampanoag land. And now through a series of, uh, a series of incidents over the course of time, I now am owner of this land. But from what you're saying, it sounds like there's, there's a lot more than that. There, there's more than that. And maybe it's a little deeper than that. And maybe it's not simply who sits where am I, am I wrong there or, or no? Well, no, that's uh, a good part of it. I mean, a good part of it is land base. Uh, mm -hmm. Now there's other factors. There's federally recognized tribes that do not have any land. You know, mm -hmm. they, they exist. Now I'll, I'll say, uh, according to the federal government, what they recognize as a tribe is a uh, federally mandated land holding corporation. They treat the tribe as a corporation. Okay. And so, I mean, you have uh, people that are ethnically Native American Indian, and mm -hmm. you have federal tribal members, and, you know, that's not necessarily the same thing. You can mm -hmm. have non-natives that are part of the tribe, you know, okay. as a part of the federal Indian 
uh, land holding corporation. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really about social order. It's about the language, about the culture, the doing. It's about where you're doing it and the the environment and the resources, the 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 living texture of the land that you're interacting with. Uh, and it, it's um, it's also about the the concept from the individual nation. Now there's you know 500, 700, a thousand, more than a thousand different peoples, different mm -hmm. nations. And each one, um, has its own articulation, has its own way of uh, expressing and conceptualizing you know, even individuality or collective being. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, uh, now I um, was a, I was mentored by a Hopi judge. He was a, uh, quite an elder. He was a Katsina father. He ran ceremonies. He was a uh, Arizona living treasure. And one of the things he said, he had to go to court for his Hopi language and culture to define it for the court. Well, one of the things he said was all this Native American Indian is new age stuff. That's just come around. That's just created. Now we have a concept for it. It's Anishinaabe. That's indigenous, native, aboriginal. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you know, there is a pan-Indian movement that was created by the federal government that are Indians. Okay. And that's a different identity than anything that existed prior to European arrival. Okay. Okay. That's so kind of getting maybe not to shift gears too dramatically, but, you know, just to maybe sum up what, what we've talked about thus far, you know, there, it seems like from your background as well, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of, of, of tribal issues, a lot of issues of indigenous folks that really dovetails quite well with the Green Party platform and especially well, with their focus around industry, with their focus around preserving the environment and such. I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Oh, no, that's great. No, I, I, I take your point. And yes, and I think one of the great things about the Green Party is it's, uh, its people are ready to say this is occupied Ojibwe territory. This is mm -hmm. occupied Sioux Lakota territory. This is occupied Navajo territory. And everybody, and it's like a nice double uh, dimensional existence. Well, yes, it is America. America was built. It was built out of uh, Native America. And yes, that, that exists. And it exists dually with what, what didn't go away. We, yeah. Is there is there any country that's that's done a good job of reconciling with the indigenous people? Because I think obviously America is probably the, the story we all know, but you have Australia, you have New Zealand, you have Canada. Like is when you look kind of across the world, is there any country where you'd borrow from or is this a model that we really need to create on our own? Well, I'm partial to my own place in the world. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, very much. And that's what I, I have authority to speak from. Although yeah. I'll say New Zealand's pretty cool. Um, mm -hmm. Maori's got lots of power and recognition. Um, New Zealand just recognized rivers as 
people legally, and so did Bangladesh. Okay. Uh, there's lots that um, I, I think um, there's certainly some presidents that are indigenous in, in South America. Um, there, there's lots that uh, do go on. And in South America, there has been tremendous tragedy and destruction of land. And they have actually given land back and seen how within 10, 20 years, native land use decision-making can return health to land. And mm -hmm. we need that. We yeah. need that a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds kind of getting to the mission of the Green Party. It, it, it sounds like there's certainly a lot that could be borrowed or, or there's a lot of common ground there. Um, and a lot of things, again, could be borrowed to better improve quality of life. Um, you know, I know I, I, one of the things I always like, love to ask, and you've kind, you've already really answered this, is you know what are some of the things that the Green Party is talking about that no other major party is? I think certainly uh, the issue of indigenous people and some of the the issues that are important to the to the people around, to the different nations around the the country, um, I think are, are certainly something that's not being borrowed by any major party. Um, Another question I wanted to ask you is, you know, whenever I, I talk with minor party folks, there's, there's also generally some things that really resonate well with your average voter. And, you know, when you look at Wisconsin as a whole, are there specific aspects of the Green Party platform that you find resonate really well with your, you know, nonpartisan uh, Wisconsinite? Right. Okay. Let me jump in here. I, I've got yeah. some notes here. Um, one thing I'll, I'll say is I don't really encourage or uh, participate in is talking about a two-party system because honestly, I really feel it's a one-party system. It's a mm -hmm. corporate party system. Yeah. I mean, they've got different takes. The violence changes a little bit depending who's in. We're nonviolent. The Green Party is nonviolent. Um, well, I will say uh, also with minorities, it depends how you're counting it. It depends who you're hanging with. It depends on your crowd. Um, yeah, I, I will use minority in this term. Oftentimes a minority is pejorical or insulting and, and used to kind of justify injustice. But I will say this, a central question I have had is how will the sustainable minorities, the subpopulations, survive the unsustainable majority. Mm -hmm. Now that's something I agree with. Now I, I also, um, you know, I want to talk about environmental tipping points mm -hmm. and titration points. And, uh, if you're familiar with titration and chemistry, you, you drop, drop, drop into a solution until you reach the titration, titration point and everything changes instantly. Mm -hmm. Now I think about, um, documentaries such as Chasing Ice, the melting of the pol the ice caps, or or Chasing Coral, the bleaching of mm -hmm. massive coral reefs. Those seem like titration points that we're getting near now. Um, COVID. Well, here we're chasing humans, <laughs> and, yeah. and you know I studied Earth System Science at Michigan State University twenty years ago, and the rise of pandemics was predicted because habitat destruction, wildlife exploitation. And, you know, it's warmer viruses move easier, you know, um, yeah, th these things are important and we're seeing it now. Um, well, there's a couple more points, uh, going back to the, 
in my early time in the Green Party 20 years ago, I debated for the Green Party. I called people up to just talk to them about their political views. I, mm -hmm. I uh, spent time in business school. Well, I found a real hate for nature in the Republican and Democrat. And, and, you know, I really, I mean, they joked about it in, in a way, but it was deep. It was a deep hatred of nature, smashing nature. And, and uh, what I heard from people is we want strong leaders that keep us safe. And my reply was, well, what if you get strong leaders that abuse their power? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, and so w we brought a Mohawk activist uh, to Flagstaff, Arizona one time. And she said, she just finds that there's a general phenomenon. People get really upset anytime there is the suggestion that their lives or choices could be or should be limited in any way. Mm -hmm. And there are some limits that people have to come to terms with, with. And, you know, I think hate speech is not free speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. Well, that, you know, it's funny. So during the 2016 election, um, I was talking to some of my relatives in Ireland and they couldn't believe the stuff that was allowed to be said. And the thing that they said is they said in Ireland, um, someone like Trump would have been uh, brought up on charges of inciting racial hatred, which, again, it's a debate to be had. Uh, whether that's the type of thing we want in the United States, but I would agree with you. It's certainly a conversation that we haven't had. Right. Uh, and a few more points. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I don't believe in race as a biological reality. I mm -hmm. think it's a social history. Oh, yeah. It's reified. Yeah. Okay. And I also want to say, I don't believe in evil as an existential concept. I think evil boils down to ignorance. Yeah. Do, do you know, it's funny. One of the first, the first month uh, I did this podcast, I focused entirely on the issue of immigration. And the first guest I ever had uh, was a uh, professor of Asian studies uh, from Williams College and, and uh, uh, K. Scott Wong. Um, f fascinating guy. And it was in that conversation that I realized that race is, like you said, it's a social construct. And really in the United States, it's a legal construct. Um, because obviously you had a case where the color of your skin meant you were either free or enslaved. Um, when uh, the mass migration from China specifically happened uh, in the latter half of the 1800s, the, 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 the reaction of the white population was we don't want another enslaved race. So we need to figure out who these people are and how they fit in. And there were actually laws written specific that applied specifically to, to Chinese immigrants. And so in this country, and I, I can't speak to how it's done in other countries, but in this country specifically, there is a very strong legal history of codifying race. Um, and, and I'm sure it, it, it's funny. This even goes back to a lot of what we're talking about with the, with the tribal issues where again, there is this social legal construct that you are of this bloodline. So here is where you exist. Here are the rights you're guaranteed under the law. And, and I don't think that as a, as a population on the whole, I don't think we fully digested just how much legacy wiring our society and our government is operating on from this legal history. Right, right. And, you know, a couple other false notions that seem to be really influential and popular. I think 
enemy civilization is a really dangerous false notion. Mm-hmm. And I also see in military individuals, military people that I have known, there's this idea that nature is only competitive. And that's, I don't think that's true ecologically. E- ecology is very cooperative. And mm-hmm. one of the things, um, you know, I started out zoology and industrial design. Well, mm-hmm. Evolution is a very important natural phenomena, but now it's an industrial process. The computers are so advanced, they do evolutionary processes and then spit out results. Mm-hmm. And American people need to understand that's something of the modern world, Evo- industrial evolution as well as biological evolution. Yeah. And, um, in fact, the computers looked at mass extinctions, and one of the things that they thought was when you have a big death of lots of species, then it uh, creates the, the situation where you'll have lots more coming out, and the computers don't see that. Well, actually, what they find is the world can be degraded, uh, there can be mass extinction, and th- it just stays that way as a poorer world a more degraded world for quite some time. And we need to take note of that since we're entering into the Anthropocene mass extinction. Yes. You know, going. Yeah. Okay. Can I throw a total curveball at you? Sure. Okay. So, cause you've, you've touched on something I'm really interested in, which is the concept that, you know, the economy represents effectively the utilization of resources, right? And ideally there should be physical boundaries to the economy. Right. So, for example, I can't buy more oil than exists on planet Earth in theory because it is constrained by physical mass. Now, the one thing that I or the, 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 the one element that I think has been thrown in over the last two decades that really skews that is the is the concept of debt. You know, and the idea that what we have seen in this country over the last two decades has been debt created either, you know, first from 2000 to 2008 via effectively fake inflated mortgages, then from 2008 until now with quantitative easing, you know, with the, 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 the Fed just introducing massive amounts of dollars into the system, making it easier for people to borrow. And so what we have is we have a system where consumption is exceeding production where what we can produce or what we're actually producing as an economy is far less than what we're consuming in kind. Um, and, and so I, I bring this up to you kind of for two reasons. You know, Number one, obviously there's this big environmental consequence of that where we are not putting those natural limits to our consumption uh, on us. Uh, but number two, there's also the fiscal issue, which is very popular with especially folks on the right, which is the idea that you know the government just can't keep taking on more and more red ink without consequence. I know I just dumped a ton on you, but good, good God, issues. Yeah. But, but, but how, how are you feeling about this? I feel like somebody like you can handle this. So yeah. Well, let me say. I mean, I think that there. Um, well, let me say there's a need for understanding deep history of geological time. Mm-hmm. Our, our atmosphere is is in the condition that that has only happened, you know, three million years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're sit, as a, I mean, it's just connect the dots. Things are going to change. Things can't stay the same because yeah. we've changed the parameters of the globe, really. Now, um, I also want to say there's probably, I don't believe that there's any techno fix for the climate catastrophe. It's simple. We must stop 
fossil fuels. We must de-escalate fossil fuels. We must de-escalate nuclear, you know, escalation. We must de-escalate uh, conventional weapon escalation. And I'll, I'll also point to, um, you know, my dad was born in 1906. My, my mom was born, be, you know, 1939. And uh, in the 50s, I, I think about half of America was growing food and it got pushed down to 2% of mm -hmm. people are growing food. And I mean, that was for big ag business and the ag dollar over good food security and sovereignty. And I think a return to sustainable local agriculture over industrial and slash and burn agriculture is imperative. P and, mm -hmm. and this pandemic has started people on the way. Uh, figures have roughly doubled of, of people engaged in agriculture, which is great and needs to go farther. Um, it's really strange we've ended up with... Um, you know, what I think American government for the past four years under the Trump administration has been aristocracy, idocracy, criminocracy, and theocracy. We've mm -hmm. got uh, rich people that, you know, the only way you can hand over the king, the keys to your kingdom to your idiot children is if you create an idocracy and a system of idiots and a system of crime. Now, the dictator of Russia and the dictator of Brazil have fully established criminocracies where they, those dictators cannot do a crime. It's in their law. Putin mm -hmm. cannot do a crime. Anything he does is the law. And the chump is so jealous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I also think people need to think about media criticism. Uh, you know, there's what are people being programmed for, operated for, you know, uh, people listening, na naive and gullible adherents don't perceive the trap. The system is not uplifting. You know, the American system is supposed to encourage meritocracy, but the rich bought it. They rigged it for their, <laughs> their offspring. They, and they siphon off the people's labor. Yep. And corrupt establishment, corrupt governance, that's a one-party system. And, you know, I also want to say, I mean, we're running out of time, but yeah, I want to say it. people should think, you know, is it possible? Is it, is it possible that, that Middle Eastern religious extremists are, I mean, race and class terrorists? Oppressing Americans with racist, classist violence. Now we've got maybe we maybe we do have some illegal settlement, settlements and occupation uh, occupation issues. We've got mm -hmm. American apartheid. Maybe we do. Maybe the continuation of slavery through the prison system is. Actually, you know, racism never, you know, racism mm -hmm. is a big issue and industrial institutional racism of American corporations sort of begins with police profiling. That's I mean, they set up the system. That's part of the job. I believe police accountability should we should celebrate our police and yeah. have them as on TV, I think their their body cameras should be going all the time with a wide viewer access. And I'll also say there there ain't no zealot like a traumatized zealot. And zealots that are you know committed and devoted to the system that traumatized them, um, 
virulent culture is one of our problems. And if anybody, any listener has a glimmer of a suspicion that they might be that, please take extra effort to try to not be that. Mm-hmm. There's a couple things I've, I, I, I think worth noting here. You know, first and foremost, um, getting back to something I said earlier, there are always things that I hear from minor party candidates or from minor party activists, Green Party, Libertarian, and so on, that aren't being talked about uh, by the major parties and aren't being talked about in the media. And the reason they're not part of the media conversation is because our media in this country is built off access. And the way you give that access is you give incumbents a platform. And so all we ever get are the conversations that are framed by both major parties. So all we ever get are effectively, we're always eating at the table that they set for us. And we're never asking questions about the amount of money we spend on our military. What's the return on that? Um, Are we doing more harm than good there? Just as an example, you know, that's first and foremost, I think everybody needs to be needs to be abundantly clear on the fact that where you get your information, generally, where the majority of Americans get their information is effectively uh, are, are from institutions, are from outlets that are effectively reading the script provided for them by uh, both major parties. That's number one. Number two, and I think something you said that was really interesting about police violence is, you know, and, and, and I'm going to borrow some and I'm going to ask for your take on this because we keep I, what I find fascinating about this conversation is we keep going back into the origin of this country. We keep going back to when Europeans arrived and how that social construct between uh, the European settlers and natives was built. And one of the things that I see about America's approach to military policy and America's approach to law enforcement is it almost goes back to the time when the first European settlers were sitting scared in some new wood, right? And there was just, there were just dangerous people all around them in their mind. And, and this concept of sometimes I think the way we view law in this country, the way we view military policy is very much like a fortress. And you have to defend your fortress from this throngs of people who desire nothing but to do you ill. And, and I think we also have to recognize that in ourselves. We have to recognize that in our history. And we really have to apply that whenever we look at someone or something we label the other. Any thoughts there? I know I just went off on a total tangent, but I don't well, know. Well, no, it's a, it's a good tangent. And, you know, the thing I remember from that is the English had a basic formula. You're either with us or you're against us. Mm-hmm. And that has played out to the current day. And it's a dangerous yep. one. And it goes with enemy civilization mm-hmm. as a false, dangerous concept. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, English love pirates. You know, I think there's a long <laughs> yeah. history there. So, um, hmm, what, you know, we've got a lot of uh, rehabilitation. I'll, I'll end, this, end with this. I think from my understanding of where we're at in the world, we have a few years left before there's a major tipping point, a major turning point, a major mm-hmm. catastrophe. And mm-hmm. if we don't get our system changed to be healthy by then, we've got a few more years and there's something even worse yeah. possible. And yeah. I mean, I think, I think from a university educated perspective on earth system science, we could 
push the Earth into a Mars-like or Venus-like state. We could end it all, except for bacteria, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, you know, I really have hope that the American system has mechanisms for change through voting, through dollar choices, through consumer choices. And yeah, we need to get way past this um, us and them enemy civilization. We, you know, everybody has suffered. And now I would like to introduce a peace treaty with the forces of humanity and the forces of nature. We need it. And, you know, the military's got to help us get it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's well, where we're at. Well, I think the fact you and I are here is at least a glimmer of hope that that, that the right change is going to occur. I honestly, I wish I had booked more than an hour. I think we could have kept going, so we're going to have to do this again. Um, thank you, Joe Nathan, for joining me, and for those of you uh, in Wisconsin or outside of Wisconsin, interesting, interested in helping out the Wisconsin Green Party and their cause. I'm going to post links both on Facebook and uh, on uh, the show notes on ydhty.com when the podcast goes live. Great. Thank you. Now, there was a lot in that episode, but the thing that stuck out most to me was revisiting the notion of a racial hierarchy baked into the founding of America. And just as people brought over from Africa were given a legal status due to their race, so were the people who were here when European settlers arrived. And we've unwound it since our founding, but this month and my conversation with Joe Nathan shows there is still a lot of work to do. And if you want to hear more episodes on the subject, check out episode number one with Professor K. Scott Wong, the first episode I ever did or any of the episodes from February 2020. Per usual, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the ad man, Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney, in North Carolina, United States of America. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.